Hey everyone, this is Michael for the In Common Podcast. In this episode, Stefan and I spoke with Dan Brockington, professor and director of the Sheffield Institute for International Development at the University of Sheffield. We talked with Dan about his important work on protected areas, and in particular, two books he's written on the subject. The first being Fortress Conservation, the Preservation of the Umkomazi Game Reserve, Tanzania, and the second being Nature Unbound, Conservation, Capitalism, and the Future of Protected Areas. As a part of our discussion, we explored a distinction that Dan makes between reality and the sometimes true myths that help to sustain reserves through their representation and help to provide brand value for conservation broadly. We also discussed the relationships between conservation, capitalism, and celebrity. While Dan's work presents a welcome antidote to panacea thinking in the conservation space, something I appreciate about his work is that he doesn't rush to present a preferred alternative, which then could become its own panacea. I think one lesson from this is that we need to be thinking about process and implementation as much as we think about the formal categories of conservation. Yeah, so thanks for joining us, Dan. I'm really, um, I initially got excited to talk to you when I was doing some research uh, on fortress conservation, trying to um, understand it from my own context, which is as a common scholar, someone who thinks about community-based natural resource management. It is a term that gets thrown around in the commons field. And I know you're aware of that field because, you know, in reading your work, I've seen, you, you know, you cite Arun Agarwal and you cite other folks that are pretty big names in that field as well. And so I saw that you had written a book on fortress conservation based on your time in, and please correct my potential mispronunciations here, the Mkomazi Reserve in Tanzania. Yeah, Mkomazi, that's right. And so I've been reading through that book and then I saw you had a, a more recent book, although, um, this was uh, from 2008, which Stefan was reminding me is now more than 10 years ago. I'm used to thinking that 2008 was, you know, three years ago, yeah. um, called Nature Unbound, which is, you know, has some similar themes also about kind of problematizing protected areas um, and this approach to protected areas. And I will say, Dan, one of the things that I've, it's been a challenge uh, for me in your work, but in a, in a good way has been that you really seem to effectively resist this kind of panacea thinking that we critique a lot in the Cummins field. Uh, I'll, I'll read one page of your writing and it says, oh, well, there's a challenge with this. And then I'll say, well, okay, he'll get to like the, the he'll have his own preferred uh, approach on the next page. But, and, the, and what you do is you say, well, no, um, other approaches don't necessarily solve the problems that I'm talking about on the last page. And so I found that both challenging, but also interesting in your work. And to kind of let listeners know, I'm thinking about how for a lot of people, fortress conservation is used as a way to promote more decentralized, more devolved community-based approaches to governance, right? That's so in my own work, that's what I study. And I have a bias towards that psychologically and professionally. But then, you know, there has been this similar problematization of that approach as well. So that's, I'd love to start off in that direction. Um, but the first question I'd love to ask you, Dan, is when you make sense of your own journey, like what are the moments that led you to, for example, study the Nkomazi, um, however many years ago it was? Like, how did you get on this path towards the PhD in anthropology, et cetera? Okay. Um, thanks for that. Um, 
appreciate the chance to tell these um, stories. They, they sometimes become clear in your own head when you get faced with questions like that. Um, so I can represent a, a version of myself to you both and um, see if this works out. Um, I uh, studied geography as an undergraduate. I did that at Oxford um, at the end of the 80s, early 90s. And that was at a time when geography there was, um, to be frank, um, not always taught very well. There were some fantastic people teaching geography there, notably David Harvey, um, and others from other traditions and in physical geography. And there were some very old fashioned um, regional geography thinking um, that hadn't really shifted very much over the last 30, 40 years. And you could see that in the reading list that we were given in some of those courses. Um, and whilst it, I, I could learn a great deal of fact that way, I um, didn't really learn about important social theory, environmental theory, anthropo anthropological theory, much geographical theory. In the Oxford system, it depended on who was taking your tutorials. Um, and so I um, had worked in South Africa before going to, to Oxford for a year um, and had been fascinated by what I learned there and had sought what was very interested in aspects of rural development of the persistence of oppression in the time of apartheid. Um, and yet did not come out of my degree with very good um, tools to understand and research those, um, those, those problems. I was, however, very fortunate um, when casting around for um, PhD research, because I was very interested in pursuing and understanding these, these issues in, in greater depth, to um, come across the work of Catherine Homewood at um, the Anthropology Department in UCL, um, which was, and I, I, I believe still is, um, the most fantastic place to learn just about anything. It's this wonderful collection of, of eclectic, diverse thinkers um, who think very differently about um, all sorts of issues. Um, in Oxford, we were taught about environmental degradation in Africa, how the, in that, that time the, the AIDS um, epidemic might not mean so uh, that there would be a so-called population crisis. I'm not quoting my views, I'm quoting the views of my lecturers. Um, and that there were all sorts of problems of degradation and decline that that, 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 that um, affected the continent. Um, views which now we would um, realize were problematic in all sorts of ways, but we weren't taught to question those. In UCL anthropology, I was. Um, but it was a, it was a, so, so coming to UCL anthropology was, it was in many respects an, an, an exhilarating um, intellectual journey um, because so many things which I thought I knew about, um, I quickly realized I did not. Um, the, Coming there was, was in fact um, something, something uh, rather uh, happenstance, rather, rather fortunate. Kathy was the person who um, responded with interest to my question, uh, uh, um, inquiries about taking on a, a PhD. Um, I was one of the last people who could take on a PhD in the British system without doing a master's first. That changed pretty much the, the, as soon as I, um, the year after I, I, I started out. She was also prepared to take me without funding because he didn't secure funding in the first instance. 
Um, and I was on the scene when a, um, an opportunity came to work in northeast Tanzania, where she was approached both by a group of wildlife biologists who were working in a, a newly cleared game reserve called Kaldum Kumasi, and also by representatives of, a, um, of pastoral NGOs, of new forms of civil society organizations which were springing up in Tanzania, who were seeking to represent those pastoralists um, in their grievances against the, the clearances. Um, so we, we, I, I was working with the right person at the right time um, when the opportunity came in and Cathy raised the funds for myself and uh, a Tanzanian colleague, Hiltaki Wasila, um, to work on a three-year project to, to try and understand the, the social context of, of, um, of Mkomazi. So um, my own journey to anthropology then was, was a case of um, happening to be in the right, right place. There was a lot of, lot of luck. Um, but then also having um, this a tremendous good fortune to come to work in a department which was superbly placed to, to challenge all the problems and issues I'd, I'd, I'd faced in, um, or, or I came to realise I had picked up in the course of my undergraduate degree. Dan, can you talk to us about what your initial impressions of the Umkamazi Reserve were? Like, how did it, how did you experience it personally? Yes, Mkomazi was um, something of a, of a, of a baptism of, of, of fire into, into conservation politics in, in many respects. Um, the reserve, what I, what I, so what I learned from Mkomazi was both the, the vigor of the, the contestations over natural resources on the ground, but also the vigor um, of the representation of those contests. Um, so, for example, um, very early on, when I was just introducing myself to the area, um, and in Tanzania you have to go through all the um, local government permissions, um, which means you go to the district council, the divisional representative, the ward representative, the, the village, and then the sub-village. Um, and you get letters of introduction you, um, from each one, you sign your name in the book and uh, visitor's book, and the government makes, makes sure they know you're there. And that is both for their surveillance purposes, um, particularly important when Tanzania was a socialist state and resisting various forms of imperialism, um, and, um, but also for your assistance. Um, if you are a, a researcher in Tanzania, you are a guest of the government, and government officers are required to help you. Your, your letters of research permit make that very clear. Um, I was in the process of testing out um, some of my um, research techniques that I would be using in my PhD, one of which is called a herd follow, because um, I was working with pastoralist communities who had been evicted from the game reserve. And um, you see what the herds are, are, are now grazing and now, 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 now living off, and you follow them. Um, and the herd that I followed went into the game reserve illegally. Um, so I stopped at the border and went back because I'm not allowed inside a game reserve, um, nor do I have powers of arrest over cattle which go into the game reserve or an observer. Um, however, I, um, I had made a mistake previously in missing out one of the levels of, I think it was either sub-village, probably, yes, probably a sub-village of, of the authorities of, of who, in, in seeking permission to work in the area. Um, and so that person um, very properly 
heard about this strange European who was um, herding cattle in the area and herding them effectively into the game reserve um, and protested. So they did their job properly. I hadn't done mine. Um, and there was an um, instant um, hullabaloo, an investigation, um, which was conducted properly in the, in the wildlife department um, allowed, allowed my research to continue. Um, having and, and, and the local governments allowed, allowed it to continue, but it made very clear to me the the, 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 the very difficult and fraught relations around um, this game reserve. Game reserves often, to particularly to um, white Western eyes, look like peaceful places. You're going to mm. um, beautiful nature. It's um, quiet. It's relaxed. Um, there's this is where you go on holiday, and yet they are founded in conflict and founded on conflict. They depend upon evictions. When I started reading into the archives of Mkwamazi, I realized that um, there are generations and layers of conflict from um, strife between different ethnic groups in the area, um, strife between the, the colony of Kenya to the north and the mandate of Tanganyika to the south, um, and, the, and the border that ran between them, strife between English rule and, and German rule. Um, between um, goals of modernity and goals of more traditional pastoral lifestyles. All these things were layered upon each other um, and different categories of colonial rule which were imposed upon people, again, created um, forms of, of, of conflict. Um, this was some of the things that I had been um, not particularly well prepared to, to see and, and, and began to, to learn more about. But I also um, realized that how important the representation of that conflict um, was. Because when I came to um, read about and study the um, way in which Mkomaisi was portrayed in conservationist literature, this place of, of, of conflict and a place where evictions had caused quite clear suffering and, and want and, dis and distress was portrayed as a place that had um, been saved, had been, um, was in re recovery, had been restored to its proper path. And specifically, the dispute over the pastoralists, um, which I'd seen just a snippet of in, in, in um, being challenged in my early research, um, which eventually led to a court case um, against the Tanzanian state brought by um, the, 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 these pastoral NGOs, which was unprecedented, completely unprecedented in the country. Um, that was omitted in the representations of, of um, Mkwamasi to the, to the wider world. And that's why I wrote uh, Fortress Conservation, because what I realized then was that these oppressive policies, which can cause problems, so many problems locally, um, were sustained by their representations. And if you've got a powerful group of wealthy, well-connected people who are, who are creating these representations, these injustices can continue. And so, and this is important, um, partly because you, one tends to find, as I think you, you were suggesting in, in, in your introduction just now, that um, there is a, what, what I call the, 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 the myth of local support, the, the idea that um, if you have local support, then conservation policies um, can be sustainable 
And if you don't have local support, they are not sustainable. It cannot be, you cannot sustain um, unpopular policies. That's, that's the idea. Now, there's clearly a lot of truth in that, um, but the argument is overextended in conservation circles. Um, and it becomes what some people have called an iron rule, that you have to have local support in order for conservation to work. That's just not historically true of, of anything. If that, if that was true, there would be no such thing as injustice in rural areas, that, uh, that you wouldn't be able to impose anything on anyone. Um, one can, and that has happened. Um, and force and violence are used to maintain um, unjust um, circumstances. And that was a, 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 the point I was trying to make in the book. Hmm. So Dan, there's, there's several points here. I mean, so you we're talking about the language I, my brain wants to use is kind of representation versus reality. In the book, you also use the term myth and, and talk about how myths are important because of the influence they have over behavior and how we view the world and what we should do in it. And there's this myth of fortress conservation. And it does sound like you know, the, the next question I wanted to ask you, and it sounds like we're, we're already kind of answering it is like, what do you, th what is your view of what fortress conservation is? And it sounds, and, and there's, you know, the myth of fortress conservation and, and maybe the reality of fortress conservation. And it sounds like, you know, the myth of fortress conservation does include this narrative of degradation that needs to be avoided. And there's this idea that that degradation is human caused. And so that's what's leading to these, um, you know, local folks being kicked out. There's a preference for Western science as being the way in which we know about the degradation, which you also challenge in the book. Um, and then there's this element, which you just mentioned, which also applies to the community-based system. And that's something I want to try to unpack a bit is you know, what are the common denominators of your critique of fortress conservation and community-based management? Because I feel like there's some commonalities there. And one seems to be this, the, the myth of, you know, you, you quote James Ferguson, who I um, read last year, the, the anti-politics machine based on his fieldwork in Lesotho, which I've, I've really grown to uh, appreciate. And, you know, he's making this similar point that there's this narrative that we can have kind of purely technical apolitical solutions to our public problems. And then that also seems to be a, an important part of the myth of fortress conservation. Am I getting it right? And are there pieces of what you view as the myth of fortress conservation that we're missing? There's a lot of, of sense in what you just said, um, Michael, but let, let me um, uh, uh, suggest a, uh, some tweaks to the terminology, if I, if, if I may. Um, so when I talk about myths, um, I'm not talking about ideas which are, are necessarily false. Um, in, in, when I talk about myths, in fact, it makes sense to talk about true myths. Um, I get this from literary critics, from actually from C.S. Lewis, in fact, he talks about the, mm. the true myth. A myth is a, a very powerful idea. Um, and... Uh, they're so powerful that we, we, we call them myths they, they, because they, they stick around for a long time. That, that's why a, a myth is a, also a very old idea in some respect. It doesn't mean it's necessarily founded on falsehood or is, is com completely untrue. When, um, it's something which resonates across the ages. Um, and I distinguish um, a, a myth in that sense from, from a, a narrative. When we talk about de degradation narratives or, or development narratives, 
we're talking about um, stories which um, make sense and because of the different component parts which come together in order to present a, 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 a characterization of a problem, um, the nature of the solution required, and then the success of that solution as, as, as time unfolds. So, so the, the, the narrative um, which is mobilized, for example, to, um, in, 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 to, to, to support uh, fortress conservation will very often in, include um, various forms of, of degradation narrative that um, we are talking about, for example, fragile ecosystems, which are suffering from too many people present who do not know how to manage their resources, who are also um, um, bringing in a, a, a exotic species like cattle or, or, or goats, which don't belong in that ecosystem or, or exotic species of, of, of cultivar um, and who are an alien presence and therefore causing various forms of, of degradation in the form of dramatic vegetation change, deforestation, soil erosion, siltation, flooding of rivers and all these things, um, similar things, which requires therefore a radical intervention to either um, remove the people or dramatically transform their um, livelihood practices or, and resource management practices or all of those things. Um, and um, as a result of this um, dramatic intervention, then um, the ecosystem recovers, people um, live uh, more prosperous lives, the potential for environmental conflict, environmentally driven conflict is reduced. And, and all these things then come together to make, to make sense into, into the sort of perfect story, the sort of thing that I learned in my under, undergraduate. So, so in that sense, fortress conservation is uh, one tool in the arsenal for dealing with um, particular environmental degradation narratives. Um, it then has added appeal because it um, taps into um, powerful um, myths of what Africa should look like, of how we can um, find, um, find ourselves, find peace, find hope and restore um, degraded, um, ruined parts of the planet back to their original form. Um, into their, it's almost an, an Edenic um, idea that, that this is um, somehow um, foundational to, to, to either our, our own identity or, our, or, or a particular vision for what Africa, if one can exclude the, the generalization, should be looking like. So it's, um, Fortress Conservation is a book then, the book that I wrote, um, br brings in both, both the idea um, or uses both these very powerful ideas, these myths of, that, that, that provide um, visions and guides to, to our, our thinking and then subsequent behaviour, um, and explores how these are um, become are used in particular narratives which make sense in their own terms um, as to what the nature of the problem with regard to African envir sort of environmental degradation in Tanzania is, and how we should solve those problems through um, particular types of conservation. Um, the term fortress conservation has um, a specific meaning on the ground, um, meaning um, strict exclusion of people from um, places which are valuable for conservation purposes. Um, fortress conservation generally means the exclusion of those people from both living and using 
those resources. Um, and it's helpful to think of it in that way because um, in other forms of conservation, in the various forms of community-based natural resource management that, that, that I think you've you done spend a lot of the time studying, um, people are allowed to use the resource, but resources use is restricted. It is restricted. It's managed. It's 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 limited in various ways. So this certainly isn't a free for all, but that but 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 use is part of the of, of the system. In fortress conservation, that does not happen, and that's either um, enforced through um, fences, which is actually quite rare in, in many African contexts. It's, um, find it in South Africa mostly, or um, possibly some parts of Kenya. Um, but and, but more, more, more usually it's, it's um, through fines um, of people who are caught, it, caught in the area, but also, and this is what um, people like Rosie and Duffy are writing about increasingly, um, violence through um, shoot to kill policies, um, beatings and, 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 and other um, maltreatment of people who are caught inside um, protected areas. And sometimes this can extend in fact into buffer zones and border zones beyond those protected areas. Um, and the, but the point I was trying to, the argument I was trying to make in fortress conservation is that it's these, um, the violence on the ground and the exclusion on the ground, um, which is what defines the fortress as a, a fortress um, has to be understood as part of the, the broader system which supports it. Now, a lot of the time, and I think this was my mistake in writing the book, but I didn't realize how much of the time, a lot of the time you can explain pretty much all of the, the, the violence and the force um, through, under, through by, by looking at what the, the national government is doing or, or the local state is doing. You don't need to turn to um, outside interference and the role of, of conservation and overseas-based conservation NGOs. Um, it's it's uh, this is this is a, a something with the, you can understand the, the politics of this by, by by looking at what's going on in the in the national state. Um, however, in in some cases and particularly some of the more high-profile cases, um, the wherewithal to uh, administer this violence and to keep the patrols going um, and to supply the, the, the rangers and everything else comes from overseas forms, um, fundraising. Um, which is why um, the book you were holding up just now, Michael, the, the book Fortress Conservation, doesn't show the typical picture that you might expect of a, of, um, of a fortress. It doesn't show the barbed wire, it doesn't show the guns. Um, it shows um, a fundraiser. It shows people um, clinking uh, champagne glasses together. And one of them's wearing, one of the people is wearing a, a top with African wildlife on it. Um, because it's the fundraising which can sustain the fortresses. It wasn't, by the way, intended to be called fortress conservation when I wrote it. I wanted to call it Saving an African Wilderness because I like the, the, the rhythm of that title. Um, but it was part of the African Issues series, and the publishers told me, James Curry said, um, we can't have two, two uses of the word African on the front cover. Um, it has to be uh, something called something else. And I was suffering from a mild case of malaria right then. My computer had died. I was trying to revise the drafts of this book on the internet cafes in, in Dar es Salaam, and I was due back in postdoctoral fieldwork in the south of the country in a few days' time. So I was thoroughly fed up and moody and wasn't 
uh, and we didn't have decent phone connections in those days. Um, so I couldn't really discuss this with them. And so I said, look, I, I just wrote a, a, an unreasonably cross email saying I was fed up. I wanted to keep my title, but if you absolutely insist on calling it something else, then you might as well just call it Fortress Conservation or something, which is the title that stuck. <laughs> okay. Wow. <laughs> yeah, well, two, two things came to mind uh, as, as you were explaining this in the last minutes. And one is, yeah, that the, 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 the walls or the barriers are more narrative and mythical than they are physical. And it, it reminded me of this notion that to some extent that kind of traditional fortress conservation narrative uh, is, is kind of the opposite or can be contrasted against this coupling of stewardship and use um, that other frames might look at that we we've kind of become disconnected in our narrative or in our myths in the, global north, uh, western developed, however you prefer to say it, um, between stewardship and use. And, and there's really a disconnect there. And that's a really powerful narrative. So when, in the sense that because we're difficult, uh, we've decoupled stewardship and use, we frame narratives around other things like uh, it must be the human driver of, of degradation and pristine ecosystems, et cetera, which you explained before. And I'm wondering if that resonates with you at all, um, this, this contrast in narrative um, coming from the outside and, and also that I would be interested in your thoughts on how to better understand contextualized conservation problems to avoid um, these kind of systemic effects that you described. So there can be local support, but there could also be other reasons for it, uh, yeah. um, more system level things. And how can we better approach doing conservation-based research to better understand those types of issues and what types of local solutions might be best applicable to conservation problems which are being faced. And I'm wondering if the discourses on knowledge co-production, transdisciplinarity, working more closely with um, local communities, governments, including a broader range of stakeholders in the types of conservation science, which is done, is something which also resonates as a potential solution. Stefan, that, um, that, that's a fascinating set of questions there. Could you please just clarify what you mean by decoupling stewardship and use, please? Um, the way that I think about it, and there's, I think we've had a few people on the, the podcast who've, who've talked about it in the sense that the users themselves um, and the people who are directly involved um, in how we're using resources are not the ones who are directly involved necessarily in the management decision-making, for example. Um, and so we've kind of had an ethic um, where we're decoupled from, and even just in our daily lives here, um, living in Germany or living in the United States, I'm more or less completely decoupled from my use of environmental resources in my daily life. Um, we've hired externally people to do it for us. So me as an individual, I'm not responsible for um, catching less fish or I'm not responsible. You know, I, I can, I have, there are mechanisms which we've established voting, et cetera, donation, volunteer work, which you can do to bring yourself closer to the problem. But in the sense we've set up our societies and where individuals are, are decoupled uh, from stewardship and use, I would say. And th this, is, this is more of um, the way I was thinking about it. Okay. 
Stefan, that's interesting. When you initially said that, I was thinking about a previous interview with Natalie Bann, who's um, worked with indigenous peoples in uh, Canada. And she talked about how there is also, she used the term like a decoupling of stewardship and use where we assume that if someone's using something, they can't be stewarding it. And this is like this basic distinction between some forms of indigenous management where that's not decoupled, where use is seen as being a stewardship based activity. And, um, to me that, that is the assumption that we can't both use and steward in my mind was a narrative that justifies a lot, our, our paradigm for conservation, that there's something to make up for in all, this is kind of what justifies the professionalization of conservation. The reason why we need people who are professional conservationists is because you can't trust the actual users. I thought that's, it doesn't sound like that's where you were going with it, but that's. No, it's, it's definitely went. part of it. And that, it reminded me of another example that in our use of resources, it can create not all the time, but it can create a cultural ethic around the need for protecting that, using it in a sustainable way, recognizing its sustained value with us. We had, there was a discussion in our, uh, in one of our meetings yesterday in my department. Um, someone gave the example that they were visiting, um, I forget where, but it was also somewhere, I believe in East Africa where they, it was a community and they had made, they were eating a turtle. Uh, they had some sort of festival and they, and they were making um, a turtle soup or something like this. And um, this person said that they were shocked uh, about that. And I don't know the context of whether that was caught illegally um, or not, but we have a narrative that use of certain resources is not a good thing. Um, whereas for that local community, it might be very much part of a cultural ethic, which allows them to use those resources sustainably. Um, because it's embedded in the way that they, um, think about their relationship to nature, think about their relationship to, um, those resources in a way that we don't, uh, or may not do that in a more Western context. And this is fascinating folks, cause, cause I think, cause you asked me, um, at the beginning, Stefan, you know, what are the implications for how we think about um, conducting research into these um, issues, given that we have these, these um, apparently contrasting assumptions between stewardship and use, um, between the, the, the ideas of the pristine and the, and, and, uh, the, the sorts of environments which are um, used. And I have found it um, fascinating um, to seek wherever possible the empirically testable propositions within any of the the, the, the given worldviews that we're, we're coming across. Um, so, for example, um, where, as in the case of Mkomazi, um, the, the claim is that um, the environment was degraded and was being ruined by human use, um, and that there were too many cattle in the area, um, that to me um, is a clear empirical proposition. Um, and if there are too many cattle in the area, then there will be certain vegetation dynamics, there'll be certain changes in the productivity of the, of the ecosystem, um, which may well indeed necessitate for some purposes, the exclusion of livestock. Um, or one could argue that the presence of livestock then um, excluded the, 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 the wildlife, not because they were degrading the ecosystem, but simply because you've got too many cattle eating too much grass and therefore wildlife numbers go down. So these, these are again in, in, empirically um, testable 
questions. Um, and so in the case of Nkwamazi, when it look, looking at the degradation, we, we, the, the degradation story didn't add up um, because when we looked into the history of, of what people had said about the reserve, we, there had been claims that there were too many cattle in the area. Um, ever since there were 5,000, 6,000 recorded head of cattle and people that thought it was too much then. Um, and they said this ecosystem is going to turn into to, to desert and be overgrazed, um, but it didn't. It produced. It went on to, ha to ha house forty thousand in, in the total reserve, eighty thousand livestock. Now that's not possible if the ecosystem is degrading. If you, you if it was degrading, it would be losing productivity. You wouldn't be able to sustain high, uh, um, increases in cattle numbers. This doesn't mean to say that then wildlife were then and and cattle were compatible ecologically. Um, but the point is the claim was made that they were causing overgrazing and degradation. Um, and I could not see that um, in, the, in the livestock numbers, for example. Um, so, so again, you, you, you build up a set of um, responses to the empirical um, questions. Um, likewise, um, the, the idea that um, fortresses, fortress conservation cannot survive um, because it does not have local support. Again, that's an empirical proposition. You can see um, what local support it has. Um, you can see um, what consequences this has for the conservation goals in the area. And in Kumazian, and this is, this is key, um, for most people, the reserve is not much of an issue. Most people aren't partialists. Um, most people might, in, if at all they infringe, might nip into the edges just to take um, fuel wood or, or um, various forms of wild food and medicinal herbs, but they're not going in very far. Um, their encounters with the reserve are, are rather rare. They're, they're not benefiting from it necessarily because there's hardly any tourists, no tourist income, but they're not experiencing very much misfortune. And the misfortune is concentrated on these pastoral groups who were politically weak. Um, in those circumstances, then the misfortune is, is very real and severe and it matters. And there were thousands of people who were affected by it, hence the court case. But does that make it unsustainable? Again, this is a, an empirical proposition that you, you can test. And, like, and, the, and the sort of work that we find, would all find fascinating, that there was the, the, the explorations into um, community-based natural resource management and, and communal um, resources. Now, here the claim is that these are um, locally based and, uh, and, and, and for that reason much more likely to um, embody uh, uh, values and ethics um, which are sustained by the community uh, uh, um, who are using those resources, all these things which, which you know much more than, than me about. And, and again, um, here it, this produces empirically testable propositions and my point here is, is not that um, the, the, we should treat these as ethically similar to fortresses. I think that fortresses are much more likely to create more problems for more people because they are a, such a severe imposition, um, uh, brooking very little di um, difference in the way in which people can use these resources. So there's, there's a whole raft of problems that arise from fortresses. And as I think I've argued in um, one of the things I, I've written, um, community-based measures will entail restrictions on livelihoods 
that can reproduce at a smaller scale and in smaller ways, but some of the problems that um, of the ilk that you find in fortress conservation. Um, if you're going to have a village-based forest reserve, as you, many Tanzanian villages do, for example, um, you aren't allowed to use this, except in particular ways. Um, so sometimes um, livestock will be excluded from a village-based forest reserve. Um, this will be enforced through fines um, and through guards. Um, and you might have restrictions on the sorts of charcoal that you can keep. Um, and that, so again, you come up with um, a set of empirically testable propositions where, you're, where you don't then take the community as a thing. I mean, this is, you know this far better than I, you don't take the community as a single homogenous entity. You say, well, which people, which entities, which um, interest groups within the community um, are being, have most influence over the rules and as to who has access to these local resources? What are the consequences for different groups within the community? For the um, for of those rules, um, and then what are the consequences of those rules on um, the sustainability sustainability resources that um, uh, result from this? And you can get situations where um, the rules don't work don't work particularly well, where the, the resource suffers as a result. Um, as I understand the the evidence, um, and this is uh, which I. You know, the work on the commons has been so valuable and so important in this respect and, and I was listening to, as I said, to Arun's podcast with you yesterday in the work of the IFRI database. There's some absolutely fascinating work uh, exploring in so many cases now how um, local rules can be much more effective in conserving different types of, uh, of local resource. And that same evidence then puts boundaries and limits on as to, as to what sort of empirical claims we can make of those resources. Conserves different types of forests, that, that's for sure. What about the bird species and the, or, or the, or the, or the, or the um, large um, mammals in, the, in those forests? Does it have the, the same impact on, on, the, on, the, on, on that aspect of the ecology? So we, so, that the, um, the research task then um, becomes one of, of, of trying to get beyond these assumptions that fortresses must fail, that community conservation is therefore better, that degradation has been happening in the areas, and to, and to ask, well, if these things were true, then how would we know this was true? And what evidence can we, can we, can we mobilize in order to um, explore that? And, and that can take you from Look at doing a detailed ecological study of, of um, forests and looking at diameter at breast height of um, different tree species to see how um, how well the forest is refreshing itself and um, uh, re renewing the um, young tree growth um, to looking at funding patterns and um, the power of ideas in mobilizing resources to support different conservation policies. The, the, the breadth of um, issues that one turns to in order to, ex to explore these questions is, is, is wonderful. So Dan, the problem now is that I have enough follow-up questions, I think, for another three hours of, of talking. <laughs> so let me just pick one. You, um, okay, so you've talked about the importance of teasing out the empirical implications of claims that are made, but at some point you also say uh, in the book that the, the rhetoric or the myth of fortress conservation re resists such kind of parparian testing. Can you talk for a bit about what you mean by that? 
Um, look, it's, it depends what we're, we're ready to hear, I guess. All, all of us are going to have things that we find um, ridiculous and uh, uh, where we, 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 we're not asking that particular set of questions because um, we've got other things to be getting on with. Um, so that's why I think none of us work in philosophy departments. Um, because we, we're not philosophers. Um, um, philosophers would, would, would have a field day asking me why I thought particular concepts mattered or ideas mattered and how they fitted together because they think that sort of thing through and, and I don't. Um, likewise, the people who are supporting and believing in fortress conservation and possibilists do so because they um, have a particular set of ideas about how um, these ecosystems and ecologies fit together um, and what Africa so-called should look like, et cetera, et cetera, and how it should be supported um, because they're keen that their wealth and resources should be used to benefit the world in ways which they perceive to be writing, making a real difference and valuable change. Now, and if you've invested in that and if you've put years of your life in that and um, probably thousands of, if not tens of thousands of dollars in, into that. If someone comes along and says, uh, actually, excuse me, the environment didn't look like you think it does, and it doesn't behave in the way that you think it does, and the money that you think is benefiting people is, is not benefiting people, um, you're probably going to think that person's a crank. Um, and the to unthink that, to unlearn that, is extremely difficult. Um, it, this, it, it's, it's been it's not doesn't exist in the realm of of, of, of refutation in that sense the theory mm. of refutation as you put it, it, it it's not because the ideas aren't refutable they are um but because the way we think about those particular set of ideas are, 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 are um not a very difficult to question okay and Dan, to follow up on something else you you mentioned, in the second book I've been reading of yours, Nature Unbound, there's a lot of discussion of the international conservation NGOs. So Wildlife Conservation Society, Conservation International, uh, World Wildlife Fund, Nature Conservancy. And you know, one leaves certainly substantial parts of that book thinking that you know, some of what, at least some of what these organizations are doing is a part of the problem. They're you know, and and then this was part of the book that was challenging for me as someone who, you know, throughout parts of my life has thought about working in one of these places has, you know, for, I think for a lot of us, these, there is this also a myth, um, which as you say, can at least be in part true of these, of these organizations being like the castle on the hill that's leading the charge uh, against, I'll just say capitalism, which is one of the most interesting parts of that book is the claim that the direction that conservation has taken is to be more amenable to capitalism as opposed to confronting it. To get to this question of um, the relationship between capital and conservation, we have to, to look at the, the patterns and the systems and the structures that these interactions tend to, tend to um, reproduce, because it's in the pattern, system and structure um, that we can tease out and better understand these relationships. So just to take one example, um, something else I was writing about at the same time as I was doing Nature Unbound was about looking at conservation and celebrity, which produced this book, Celebrity and Environment. And the pattern that I was trying to um, understand in writing that book 
was that if you take all these amazing um, conservationists who are, are, are bound in East Africa, and if you look at all the work that they do and you think about um, Jane Goodall or, or, or the late Diane Fossey, you think about um, George and Joy Adamson, you think about the Leakeys, you think about Ian um, Packer, or is it Craig Packer who works in Lions, you think about um, Ian Douglas Hamilton, um, you think about um, so many conservationists, um, all of whom are working in East Africa or South Africa, and they share one common quality, um, which is that they're all white. And you have to ask, well, what produces that racial balance, imbalance? How many famous black African conservationists are there? Where does that demand come from? And that's when you can begin to see um, that this sort of conservation celebrity is not just a, um, a form of um, individual devotion to wildlife, which it absolutely is. It's in also, in fact, a commercial product. It's something which creates value um, um, for, for film companies, for, well, for, for wildlife organisations themselves. But it's a way in which uh, it's, it provides a, a means for wealthy Westerners to find ways of intervening effectively in and supporting effectively what they seem to be perceived to be um, wildlife conservation problems, because these are people um, who look like us, they think, who can um, provide a means for uh, a, a respectable, likely safe means of supporting wildlife conservation issues. So in that pattern and system, you can see that um, instantly it's, it's not just about saving nature, it's not just about these, these, these um, reputable, reputable castles on the hill, um, but also um, the, there, are, there, are, there are things going on um, which clearly are, are, are problematic. Now with capitalism and conservation, um, I think we, we have to recognize that there are many ways in which um, conservation strategies are explicitly linked to um, profit-making activities, which are, um, which in various ways are, are, are designed to help sustain and support um, capitalist society. And that we need to, we need to see conservation in this respect as not just um, a bulwark against the, the spread of capitalism or the, or, or the spread of the um, use and um, degradation of resources, but um, a set of, but providing a set of resources which in fact people can um, extract value and, and derive value from. Um, part of this is the obvious stuff about um, tourism. Um, and there's a, there's a, a well-known history in the US about the role of tourism in creating and, and railroad companies um, in creating the need for um, and the first um, national parks in the States um, because um, it provided a, um, a place for people in the East Coast to, East Coast to go to. Um, I mean, in some respects, with good reason, these, these are pretty spectacular places. Um, and yet um, the extraction of value from the landscape was integral to the particular conservation strategies of those landscapes, um, which meant, of course, the clearance of indigenous residents of those, of those um, lands. 
Um, but it goes much more, it goes beyond that in the sense that the, the representation of these landscapes, um, being able to say that we are securing pristine rainforest or pristine African savanna, um, then provides um, brand value. It provides, uh, um, it, provide, it, it shows that you're doing a particular set of good things um, in order to, um, to, to support nature. Um, but of course, again, this is where they're coming back to this rep, these representations that first, first, I first came across at Dumkumasi. Um, these representations don't necessarily show the true state of that environment or the true state of that nature. They show a particular version of that nature and that environment, which is quite likely to have missed out important aspects of this place's um, past and history. So it was once, a, um, quite a while ago, a, a rather intriguing hoax um, played um, on a conservation organisation, which I'm not going to name because I might get it wrong and it would be unfair on the organisations that I, if I did get it wrong, but a, a group of people set up a fake, fake website for the Lockheed Martin, the arms manufacturer. Um, and they then approached a major conservation organization and said, look, we want to sponsor you, um, and preferably you want to sponsor um, some form of raptor conservation because we think um, sponsoring an eagle will go well with our fighter planes. Um, and <laughs> they, they went along with it, absolutely. I mean, the, the, the strange thing was you've got this multi-million pound arms dealer um, who wanted to do things like uh, clean up the environment after the, they'd spread the cluster bombs all over it. Um, and yet they, they were trying to charge them, I think, a, a miserly $35,000 in order to um, ally with that organization. Relations with corporate sponsors is, are absolutely vital um, for uh, conservation affairs um, and, and, and the larger conservation organizations. The, the, they gain money out of, the conservation organizations gain money out of these transactions and the corporate organizations um, gain brand value and respectability as, as a result of, because so many of us look, at, look, look upon these organizations as, as castles on hills. Yeah, well, I, I wanted to ask you and follow up on this celebrity advocacy and this tension between immorality, viewing it as immoral versus viewing it as radically effective. I think you, you touched on that here, but if you'd like to add on that, um, that, that tension even more would be, would be good. And, but what makes me think, um, um, what are, when you think about some of the problems that you are approaching now, what do you see as important places of research that can be focused within this conservation space to better help understand that? And where do you guide your attention going forward and into thinking about um, what types of problems in, in this space? So the, um, the, the, the challenges of, of understanding celebrity um, in conservation environmental affairs, um, to my mind, they, they can uh, get fixated upon what I think is a bit of a red heading, red herring, sorry, of, of whether or not it, um, celebrity, um, celebrities have got any um, 
business speaking out about conservation, whether these are um, interlopers, um, to other people who, who um, try to see, look, look not at what they, their, people's right to speak or authority to speak, um, but rather um, the, their effectiveness. Um, and to me, this is, um, authority to speak has not really been a, a, an issue for celebrity in, in that what celebrity is meant to achieve is, is not so much authority, but rather um, recognition or recognizability and attention. And to complain that a celebrity is drawing attention to a particular issue is to complain that a celebrity is being a celebrity. A celebrity's job is to be seen. Um, the, 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 the issues which I, which I think are more important are, are with respect to celebrity and, and environmental affairs. In the first instance, to try and better understand the um, tremendous diversity in different international celebrity consumption cultures. And by this, I mean, um, in different parts of the world, people respond to celebrity in very different ways. Um, in parts, as I, and I, I generalize horribly here, but in, in many parts of India, in South Korea, in Japan, to some extent in the US as well, um, celebrity has a, is, is, draws a lot of attention from a lot of people. Um, in Europe, much less so. Um, and again, this is, this is the, the, the challenge that I faced doing, doing, that, doing my work was um, many people assumed that celebrity drew attention. Um, but when you ask how we know that, um, it becomes much less obvious that celebrity does draw attention. In fact, what we learn is that celebrity works in part because everybody thinks that everybody else is looking. Um, but in fact, that, that they're not necessarily doing so. At least they're not necessarily doing so in the UK and many European countries, as far as I can tell from the evidence. Um, they may be doing more looking in, in other um, countries. And you can look at this empirically by seeing how many, how often, for example, celebrities are used in advertisements um, and, and uh, as, a, as a strategy for drawing attention. And it, it happens a great, a great deal in South Korea and Japan. I don't know the numbers, but I think a great deal in, in, in India, much, much less in, in European contexts. So that's, that's one issue. Um, the other issue is um, that the, the political economy of celebrity, um, which helps us to explain how it works and how it achieves the effects it does, um, is being transformed as a result of um, social media and the ways in which people can, uh, multiple ways in which so many more people can become celebrities as a result. And all the theories and, and, and things that I was exploring when I was working on celebrity 10 or so years ago, um, which was just about as Twitter was beginning to arrive and, and as social media was beginning to take, to take off. And all those means are, are, are now being um, rewritten. Um, and there's some amazing academics, people like Crystal Abedin, who are now working on this and exploring the political economy behind um, celebrity in a social media age. Um, is, is, I think, a really important thing to be looking at, exploring for, for researchers. Going, going back a bit to this distinction between fortress conservation approaches, community-based approaches, something that I've been wondering for a while is whether a part of the underlying dilemma is that we are trying to formalize governance into these modalities, into these formalized approaches. So we have protected areas, 
we have community-based natural resource management. And, you know, part of the critique, particularly of the formalization of, of CBNRM, as you mentioned, is that, look, it's, we're, we're imposing this administrative layer onto a complex reality. And I've wondered more and more, and, and in your, um, the second book, the nature unbound, you also talk about carbon credits and like the, the popularization of, of markets. That is, you know, another like very popular modality or panacea or whatever you want to call it. I've wondered more and more whether we need to move away from a discourse about which formal approach is better or best and whether an insistence on thinking about that, which certainly dominates a lot of policy discourses still, right? Like some people will say, oh, in fisheries, it's individual transferable quotas are really the way to go, or it's a marine protected area. And there are different groups of people that systematically prefer one of these approaches over others, right? So like, again, you just were excusing yourself for generalizing, I'm gonna, gen I'm gonna you know, see you and raise you more generalization. You know, broadly economists really like market-based instruments, they like ITQs and, and conservationists like protected areas and anthropologists and sociologists really like community-based natural resource management. This is really great article by um, Dengbo et al. 2006 that talks about this. And I'm just wondering what you think about this idea that maybe part of the problem is that is, is exactly that dynamic where we get groupish and our different intellectual groups decide that we like this approach. And then the other group responds by saying, oh, well, we like this approach when, and, and each group kind of falls into some of the same traps. Like how does, how does that idea strike you? So it definitely makes sense to understand, to look for the role of groups in shaping particular sets of ideas and um, particular sets of, of policy formations. I, I love the um, idea of um, epistemic communities, groups of people who are thinking and working together on papers and research projects and going to academic meetings and publishing and reading in the same sorts of journals. Um, and um, you can see those epistemic communities working, creating, not least, a group of people who study the commons, mm -hmm. or a group of anthropologists and practical geographers who, who study conservation, um, in groups of people, who, ecologists who will look at African wildlife or, or, or African savanna wildlife. Um, and when you study the epistemic communities and see how they interact and relate, and particularly if you're if they're working um, on field work in difficult environments um, where they're forced into each other's company for hours on end, and these are often much more than epistemic communities. I mean, they start getting married to each other and their children take on similar roles and so on. So, so um, groups absolutely um, make sense in as a way of understanding how um, particular sets of solutions um, get, get and created. Um, I'm not convinced I would describe these groups as anthropologists and, on one hand and, and economists on the other. Um, I think they often cut across these disciplinary lines. So the, um, amongst the people I've learned most from in my own field are the heterodox economists, um, people like Sarah Bracking, whose understanding of financial architectures is absolutely brilliant. 
Um, and I mean, it makes me feel very, very stupid very quickly. Maybe that's not too difficult, but the point is that um, she is not in one with the other economists who are, who are advocating for, for market-based reforms. I also think that we need to recognize that um, epistemic communities are not created equal at all. And the epistemic community of which I'm part of, might, one might call a political ecology of conservation, um, is offering critiques of um, mainstream forms of conservation, um, which in many respects have been captured by what we call the, the, the neoliberal market-based solutions, which seek to use markets to govern natural resources and see the absence of market governance as part of the problem and reason why you have different forms of degradation, whether this be um, atmospheric pollution or um, too much um, poaching from um, wildlife who aren't, which aren't valuable enough to local communities and therefore you need to inject monetary value into these um, resources and, to, um, and, the, and the management of the resources in order for those resources, uh, for, for these resources to be managed properly. Um, I think that if we see where we're trying to understand the, the, the power of particular groupings, you have to see how um, the ideas that they're, they're, they're espousing, um, so the, the idea of market-based solution, for example, um, how that resonates with the zeitgeist of the time from much more powerful groups of policymakers and influencing government, um, which have seen, um, as, as, as we have described in, in Nature Unbound, this, this rise of, of, of neoliberal approaches to dealing with the, um, conservation problems. So it's, it is absolutely about groupings, it's absolutely about these different epistemic communities, um, but we have to recognise that there's a, a broader political economy of um, influence that, that these different epistemic communities can, can either tap into or are excluded from. I mean, in some ways, Dan, it, it sounds like we're having a similar conversation about epistemic communities as we've been having about local resource user communities, where it's it's not one group. There's there's pores, there's fluidity, and there's dynamics between that group and other folks that affect what they can do, et cetera. Um, yeah. Okay, so what's next for you, Dan? What are the challenges that you know, still get you excited that you want to try to address in your own work, in your own epistemic community and, and or in the relationship between that community and other groups? Like, what do you think is next for you? Well, there's a couple of things um, coming up, really. Um, pretty much anything I've tried to look at from environmental histories to um, the work of celebrity to the studies of developmental conservation NGO sectors, um, they've all meant asking and questioning again how we know what we know about particular things and why particular views are um, are powerful. And in the latest iteration of that was that we were studying uh, long-term livelihood change in Tanzania and revisiting places and sites that had been studied by researchers 20, 30 years ago. And um, in the process realised that there was a lot more wealth and prosperity in these places than we were expecting. And places which had been um, basically poor had become much richer. Moreover, the people, this wasn't just our own view, this was a, what, what people who were living there were telling us um, when we went back to the societies we um, 
had been part of and, and researched earlier. Um, and it turns out that the measures of poverty that had been used to show that um, neoliberal policies of reform in Tanzania, um, had, had, which had seen economic growth increase quite sharply, but um, poverty declined relatively slowly, that was based on a measure of poverty that didn't include the forms of wealth that were valued locally. Um, they, in, in technical terms, they, they weren't, poverty lines based on measures of consumption don't include productive assets, your farms, your plows, your, your oxen, your, your agricultural implements. Um, and it was ownership of those and, and, and control over those agricultural productive assets that made people think that they were wealthy in Tanzania. Um, and so it was, it was just rather exhilarating, actually. There was a whole set of ideas which I had about the um, influence of neoliberal conservation, a neoliberal agricultural policy, um, which I, I had to rethink completely um, and, and, and set about understanding all over again, because the, the data that I thought um, were robust and the patterns that I was trying to explain were um, didn't include the, the forms of uh, important aspects that are vital for um, local perceptions of well-being. Um, and that kind of thing, I just love. I just, when you come across a surprise, when you, when you have to rethink your categories, your, the, the way you um, viewed the world, that's, that's um, one of the joys of doing research, actually. Um, so more of that um, would be wonderful. And I've, I'm very fortunate to work with people like Christine Noe at the University of Dar es Salaam, with whom we, we just uh, launched a book at the University of Dar es Salaam a couple of weeks ago. And it's getting a lot of interest, in, which means front page news coverage. And it's been downloaded 1,500 times in three days after it was launched. Um, this is due to Christine's networks and um, an intellectual called Chambi Chachagi, who's also been promoting it. Um, I mean, all my other books, um, for all the time that they've been available, which is years, have been downloaded 750 times. Um, this one has more than doubled it in, in, in three days. Um, and it's great because it's, it's largely taken up in, in Tanzanian circles. Um, there's a lot of local interest. And so I, I, this, I think, is quite important. I mean, it's a, it's a perennial problem in research. Um, how do you measure effectively the thing that you're really interested in it? Often what we do is actually we, we, we measure proxies. We measure proxies of wealth. We measure proxies of happiness. We measure proxies of um, income, indeed. Um, we, so, 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 and and, and the, the relationship between the proxy and the thing that we're trying to, to, to capture is, is um, often tenuous and has to be re-examined. So this is, I'm, I'm very fortunate. I'm we, at the moment where we're now seeking to re-examine this relationship and, and, and the proxy that we should be using. So, so that's one... Un underlying area that I'm, I'm very interested in. The other is a really interesting um, problem, um, which is an, an issue which has arisen. And in some ways it, it's a bit cyclical, this, um, because 20 years ago, at um, 18 years ago at the World Parks Congress in Durban, um, they announced that the, they had achieved the goal of, of setting aside 10% of the land surface of the planet and 10% of different um, terrestrial um, ecosystems. Um, and this was greeted with um, rapturous applause from the thousands of people attending the conference and not greeted with much questioning as to what the social impacts of that success had been. And this began a 
important debate about the relationship between poverty and conservation and poverty in protected areas and the social impacts of protected areas um, that was greeted with some consternation, I think, amongst the conservation community, but also um, recognizing the many people recognize the importance of, of, of this aspect of conservation because um, a lot of conservationists are very good people and very few conservationists want to cause impoverishment. Um, the idea that conservation might cause poverty was, is unwelcome and resisted because no one wants to be, to be seen to be doing that kind of stuff or even to be known to be doing that kind of stuff. But, but, the, um, um, but nonetheless, the, 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 the people, people have recognized the issue. And we're coming around full circle because there is now a push to um, identify the right parts of the planet that need to be protected in order to, to direct conservation attention at 30% of the land surface of the planet um, by 2030, the so-called 30 by 30 movement, um, which for many people is a step towards protecting half of the planet by 2050, the 50 by 50. And you've got movements like um, Half Earth Movement or, or Nature Needs Half, um, which are advocating different means of setting up, uh, uh, different, different means of, of, of strategizing as to which areas we prioritize. And it is extremely striking to me that very few, or sorry, that few of these accounts, because some are now, but few of these accounts thought to ask how many people were living in the places that were, set, that were being um, set up as uh, requiring conservation attention. Now, to be fair, um, many of, of the people advocating for this are insisting that um, we were not talking about strict protected areas, we're not talking about fortress conservation, we're talking about other effective er uh, conservation, area-based conservation measures. Um, and they um, want to Take in, take, make sure that people's needs are, are, are taken into account. Um, but if you're failing even to count the number of people involved, um, then it's going to be, it's, it's just rather opposition to be saying we, we do think people matter, and yet um, we haven't bothered to count how many people there might be. Um, so there's a disjunct there. Um, and in some respects, I, I, I feel that the, the debate has gone back 20 years, um, where in terms of not effectively learning from conservation social science. At the same time, the other fascinating aspect about these, um, these prioritization models is they're using really interesting and complex um, data layers um, of where species are, of what habitat is like, of, which, of where species can effectively live, of the effective habitat that they, that they um, have access to, of um, crop yields and um, future agricultural trends, um, economic modeling, they've got future um, dietary yields, um, dietary needs, sorry, they've got um, population distributions in them. They've got many, many data layers. Um, and we all know that these data layers contain um, blindnesses, difficulties, but sometimes they're based on the analysis of algorithms which um, will either reproduce um, blindnesses in the construction of the data or they will um, create new forms of, of, of overlooking or neglecting um, different forms of human needs or, or even non-human needs. Um, and there is 
a, a really interesting group of people who work precisely on the problems of data justice, um, on the um, injustices um, of people being neglected by data layers, or in fact being suffering from too much surveillance of not having the, the, the right to be overlooked, the right to be forgotten. Um, and these groups, um, I don't think they really know each other exists yet. The data conservation, the, the, the data justice community, we're doing really good work on um, environmental um, data justice as well, have not yet looked at, at conservation very much. Eric Nost and Jenny Goldstein have, are, will be producing an edited collection which begins to do this. And Lords Vera has also been working on this, perhaps Kevin St. Martin as well in Rutgers. So as always, this is not terra nullius at all. There are people who are doing interesting work, but most, generally speaking, um, it's quite quiet. Um, the conservation prioritization community are not sufficiently aware of the data justice issues in the data that they're using. Um, I am really looking forward to bringing those groups together because I don't think political ecologists, the group that I represent, um, whilst we've been engaging with um, the conservation prioritization community, we also haven't been taking data justice um, considerations into effect. So I'm working now with um, Chris Sandbrook at, at Cambridge and with Casey Ryan in, in Edinburgh. Um, and we're trying to bring together um, a different group of people um, to discuss these issues. We've got people in the conservation prioritization, prioritization community, people like James Allen, um, Piero Bisconti, um, who are responding, engaging in the, in the best traditions of science um, about with our, towards our challenges of, uh, as to the nature of the, of the work they're doing. Um, but by best traditions of the science, I mean they are, we are disagreeing about stuff um, in thoroughly collegiate ways and seeking to engage with each other. Um, we have the Global um, Land Programme community, of which Casey Ryan is part, who are in, interested in using different uh, data layers and data sources to understand dynamics in, in land use change and are now recognizing that conservation is effectively a form of land use which needs to be included in their models. We've got the data justice community, we've got various other um, great brains um, who, are, who are getting together, we hope in April, and, and just to, to begin these sorts of conversations. That all sounds really fascinating and important, Dan. I mean, one of your comments about these different you know, epistemic communities not knowing each other about each other reminds me of a point you made in the Nature Unbound book about the, the, the separation between the literature studying conservation NGOs and those studying development organizations. And it's a similar problem. And I feel like this is a problem with knowledge production generally is we all get in our epistemic communities and it's when you're trying to optimize and be productive in that community, it's, it can feel like it's extra work to branch out and, and explore the and discover often that there's a whole set of folks that are trying to solve some of the same problems hmm. and it, it reminds me of a term that's done a lot of work for me in the last couple of years this idea of a of, of a boundary actor it's related to the idea of a boundary object too but someone who's able to bridge these divides i think these types of folks are needed on the ground for actual governance but they're also needed in our own spheres as we try to um develop more holistic approaches to understanding those systems Hmm. So it's, it's encouraging that I don't want to foist that identity on you. 
Um, but it's a question I ask of a lot of guests because it seems like it's it's an interest that a lot of folks have is like, how do we, how do you navigate as a boundary actor? How do you communicate with one group and then with another group that have their different discourses and norms and assumptions, as you say, about like what can be tested? Yeah. Yes, I, I, I find that also very helpful that the, 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 the uh, this, this idea of economic, of, of academic boundaries and, 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 and crossing over them. Um, it's quite, it's also relative. I mean, so, so I might see a boundary between conservation, prioritization and, and, and data justice. And um, other people might see that as simply just conservation, social science, and political ecology. Um, and it's actually, and so, and people who cross fewer boundaries, but know their particular area really well from the inside. They, I mean, they also have a hugely important role to play in, in the work we do. It's easier to cross boundaries if you have also representatives of, of particular groups who, who know that know their area superbly well. Well, this has been great, Dan. Are there other topics you want to make sure we cover before we wrap up? Folks, it's been a real privilege to take part in this. Thanks so much for asking me. Do let me know if there's any ways I can support and, and follow up afterwards. Great. Thanks so I'll much, be Dan. in touch. Okay. All right. Take care. Take Keep care. Goodbye. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening, everyone. As always, you can find more episodes as well as entries in our blog on our website, incommonpodcast.org. The Incoming Podcast is the official podcast of the International Association for the Study of the Commons, or IASC.